You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you a conversation with Andrew Frischman. From the minute he met a student from the flagship Big Picture Learning School, Andrew Frischman knew he would be involved in crafting education one student at a time. He became a big picture learning advisor at the now world-famous Met in Providence, Rhode Island, and then the internship coordinator at Met Sacramento. For the last six years, Andrew has been co-director of Big Picture Learning. One of his initiatives is Emblaze, an internship management platform that helps young people connect with work-based learning and helps teachers monitor their location and their progress. Let's listen in to learn more about Andrew's backstory and Big Picture in this conversation with Tom. Andrew Frischman, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Well, thanks so much, Tom Vanderark. It's a pleasure to be on the Getting Smart Podcast. Uh, you you were really born and raised here in the Boston area? Uh, I, did, I grew up uh, just north of Boston in Andover and spending a bunch of time in Lawrence, Massachusetts. I was officially uh, born born in New York City, but was only there till I was five, so I'm not sure that my formative years were, were there. Did when you, you went off to Wesleyan, did you... You want to be a biologist or a teacher or a teacher of biology? I, exactly. The, the latter, actually. So I'd, uh, I'd had some experiences when I was growing up. I was a, the kind of kid who just every day when I got out of school and I got home, I would drop my backpack and go off and run around in the woods and find streams and flip over rocks and logs and pull out the grubs and the amphibians and in the summer try to get out to the, the marsh and in the salt flats whenever I could. So I knew I wanted, I was interested in biology. Um, but I also had a younger brother that I took care of um, and liked to, liked to help him uh, learn to read and learn to find things he was excited about. Some of my really early experiences were then babysitting and working as a camp counselor. And I suddenly realized that, oh, I had a few science teachers I really liked and helped me learn about new things. And um, in particular, one who I got to take a marine biology course in high school he said, you know, you should try working at an aquarium sometime. So I got to intern at the Woods Hole National Marine Fisheries Service Aquarium. Wow, when I was famous place. Yeah, when I was in middle and middle and high school. And it was really a, a formative experience for me. Um, I said, I really like this whole educating young people about science thing. Um, so I went off to Wesleyan because I wanted to become an educator and also was interested in science. Um, and so that was how I, how I selected that. You did a master's in teaching at uh, Brown? Yeah, so that was that was later. I'd intended to pursue education studies while I was at Wesleyan, and they unfortunately closed that program down while I was there. Um, so I, but after graduation, I went off and did not have a teaching credential, so I was unable to, to jump into the public system. But I think it was all right to cut my teeth in a couple of different private schools. Like, those, those kids were, were going to be okay. Their families had provided them with a bunch of support and resources, and if my, if my teaching of meiosis and mitosis was not perfect, it was, it was going to work out all right. Uh, so I learned a bunch, but I knew I wanted to be in the public system, and I, I came to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, to do the, the Brown MAT program. Yep. Any um, influencers there at Brown? Oh, yeah, certainly a few. I mean, my just first sort of like I think the 
the godfather of our whole movement, uh, Ted Sizer, his his presence looms really large there. And big, so, big time. absolutely. So, you know, his his work with the Annenberg Institute and then founding the Coalition of Essential Schools, uh, certainly just a really powerful presence there. And then my, my direct clinical professor is a, a gentleman named uh, Larry Wakeford, and he was very much about hands-on, experiential, uh, getting young people to actually think up questions and develop um, their own experiments and come to their own conclusions, very cross-disciplinary as well. So I appreciated everything from the sort of big thinking about the system down to sort of the nuts and bolts blocking and tackling to design learning experiences for young people. How'd you get started at the Met? Well, so it's uh, it's actually related uh, yeah, sort of indirectly to the Brown MAT program, as, as often happens at um, innovative and pro- progressive supportive uh, graduate schools, there were a variety of times when um, guest speakers would come in and there was one night when the entire uh, master's cohort got together and it was innovative schools night and they brought in, I think, folks from three different schools. I remember the first, the first one was a, a principal who got up and said, you know, described how at their school, I don't remember the exact school now, but it was in the Providence area, that they had recently started doing restorative justice circles, and that this has helped them to drop their suspension rate by 14%. There's a little, you know, I appreciate that. I think it's good work, um, but it was a little bit of a, like, okay, 14%. Um, and then the next school was a, the head of the math department um, uh, got up and talked about this new uh, tech-enabled curriculum that they were utilizing that had bumped their math scores on the state tests by 17%. And again, I just was sort of like, well, that, that's good. That, that's okay, I think. Um, but the third presenter was uh, the math school. And instead of a principal or department chair standing up, there was a 10th grader who got up um, and he spoke about how between uh, 6th and 10th grade, he had been to four different schools and that his family could not find a place where he would stay engaged or connected. And he was just not not really loving school. And it wasn't until he got to the Met that he connected with one advisor who sat down and asked him and said, so who are you? Where do you come from? What are you interested in? You know, what are you good at? What are you want to get better at? What's school been like for you in the past? And where do you see yourself in the future, five, 10 years after high school? Um, and through some of those kinds of conversations, um, you know, this young man described how uh, he said, well, mostly what I like to do is hang out with my friends. And his advisor said to him, so when you hang out with your friends, what do you do? Said, well, you know, we've known each other since we were really little kids. So we talk about what it was like to be little kids. We talk about what it's going to be like when we're older and we're going to hang out on the porch and you know, and the advisor said, oh, sounds like you're interested in developmental psychology. <laughs> and then, and I think it, that framing asked him a couple other questions. You know, so what, what else do you care about? Well, we think about our neighborhood and we think about the other neighborhood on the other side of town and what the kids are doing over there. And some of them get things that we don't. So, oh, sounds like you're interested in sociology and economic equality. So it's just a way of framing what young people are thinking about that helps open up new new things. And that kid, the story that he then described was that he went on to have an internship with an anthropology museum, the Hafenreffer Museum of Anthropology, and he got to engage with a bunch of donations they had had around pre- and post-colonial societies and the way in which young people become adults. And so he was actually creating some exhibits 
around the way in which young people become adults. This is a 10th grader who was talking about this. I said, I don't know, that thing, I don't know what that is, but I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of something that starts with kids saying, I'm bored in school and I just like hanging out with my friends, and it leads to them developing anthropology exhibits. So that's, I was hooked. We should do a little background on the Met. It's it's a flagship school for the Big Picture Network, bigpicture.org. It's really four small schools on the same campus in downtown Providence. That's right. Uh, yeah, just south of downtown in South Providence. Um, and it was launched uh, 25 years ago. Uh, Dennis Lickey and Elliot Washer, the co-founders of the Met, um, started with just 50 kids and this idea that if you took one kid at a time and started with their interests, connect them out in the world so they leave to learn from the school, um, and that they do really authentic work out in the community in internships. So that's been that's been the legacy. It's grown to now 900 schools. Or sorry, 900 students in Providence. So, like you mentioned, four small schools and on Public Street, a little satellite campus uh, uh, about a mile away, and then a, another campus down in Newport as well. And, and that was the inspiration for the Big Picture Learning Network of schools. Uh, they're now 65 around the U.S. and a couple hundred around the world. Uh, what did you do at the Met? So when, after uh, seeing that that presentation, I came up and said, "I want to. I don't know how you exactly organize learning. I was that naive, um, but I want to be a part of that. What can I do?" Um, and so I started as an advisor. I had a, a group of 16 students that I started with in the fall of 2002, and I was in charge of working with them and coordinating their individualized learning plans for the next four years, all the way through to graduation in 2006. And it was, you know, I think the tagline from from the, uh, the Peace Corps is apropos. It really was the, the toughest job that you'll ever love. I, I, it was intense in all of the kinds of wonderful ways, um, intensely gratifying, intensely satisfying, intensely challenging, um, intense learning. I just, I just had the opportunities to learn so much about elements of the world that I did not know about um, from their families and communities that they were coming from uh, all around Rhode Island and all around the world, really, um, and also the things they delved into. You know, un unlike my previous experiences where I might have two or three or four periods in a row where I was teaching the cell cycle, all of a sudden, because each young person was pursuing their own interests and passions, you know, my quote-unquote work day might look like going first into an architect's office to check in with a young person interning there, and then into a head start to see how they were helping to develop literacy, um, and then off to a science lab uh, to see what kind of research was happening, and then finally to the city council's office to see what legislation was being worked on. So I had a chance to see the way in which people were working in a wide variety of different kinds of uh, place, workplaces, which really shifts the way you think about learning and teaching. How'd you get to Met West in Sacramento? Yeah, so I, I moved out there um, in, uh, so my, my advisory concluded their time and graduated in 2006. Uh, my wife, who had just uh, completed her doctoral work, uh, lined up a postdoc at UC Davis. Um, and so we were looking out in that part of the country. I, I took a look at big picture schools at the time in both Sacramento and in Oakland. Uh, so I looked at Met Sacramento and Met West down in Oakland and got a chance to, to go take a look at the two. And I, I just happened to hit Met Sacramento at a time when it was getting ready and poised for some significant growth. So I was went out there and became an advisor for a bit. And then over the next few years, helped to grow the school from about 80 students up to a little over 300. 
Um, and so I moved from being the advisor into being the internship coordinator, where I got to really focus on thinking about how to connect all the young people out to an interest-based real-world learning opportunity. So you're now a co-director of the Big Picture Learning Network. You you uh, direct the network with the talented Carlos Moreno. That is a, correct. A great uh, partner in the adventure. Absolutely. Um, how do you guys split things up and, and how are you thinking about the, the future of the network? Absolutely. Well, I think... You know, folks ask that a fair amount because for some reason, co-leadership is not particularly common out there, in particularly in the education world. Um, I think, you know, Carlos and I often say that like, we, we don't divide and conquer, we multiply and collaborate. Um, I think part of it is based on a long history of working together uh, and trust. You know, I mentioned uh, that uh, being an advisor in Providence, well, Carlos and I were advisors literally across the hall from each other for four years. So we've gotten to know each other and each other's families. Um, we do have you know, ways in which we uh, sort of orient our focus and priorities in the work. Each of us pick up different pieces of it, a uh, combination of what we love the most and what we're most excited to do. Um, and so there's not a lot of um, strife between us about who's gonna do what. You know, I think we're both excited to do each of the pieces and we tag team off of each other really effectively. Um, each of us do have some particular initiatives that we that we focus on leading. Uh, Carlos is one of the the founders and co-leaders of the Deeper Learning Equity Fellows, uh, which is a way to help support um, emerging school and system level leaders who are really interested in questions around deeper learning and ensuring that there's equitable access for all young people and educators within those contexts. Um, and one of the things I'm working on growing and building and developing is in Blaze, which is an internship management system that helps schools and outside of school organizations to coordinate internships at scale. So each of us have some specific projects and initiatives within Big Picture that we that we prioritize. I guess let's let's talk about the the network. Um, maybe maybe you can outline the value proposition. So what, what do schools get when they work with you? Um, you know, why affiliate with Big Picture? Yeah. Well, why not affiliate with Big Picture? I think, <laughs> um, I think so. I guess maybe I'll answer that, that other, that hypothetical question I just raised, which is like, why not? And I think the reason why not is that if you set out to go launch a really innovative, cutting edge outside the box school that's really going to focus on student interest driven real world connected learning right you're going to try to get to those deep gnarly questions around how to help young people have those experiences and then beyond that how to train the educators to support that and train the school leader to be able to lay out that vision and support it you know it's it's fantastic and exciting and invigorating and edgy and rebellious to feel like you're the only one person doing some unique thing. Um, but it also can be really exhausting and, and you need some way to recharge. You need to know when you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, I think those um, folks who are exploring and, you know, entrepreneurs, sort of astronauts headed to some new outer space area, they need to be able to know that they've got folks they can call up and say, how do we do this thing? Or I'm about to try this. What do you think of that? Um, so I think a lot of the real value proposition is that we can connect them with other so folks in our network who have faced some of those kinds of challenges or obstacles, perceived obstacles before, um, and help them continue to get better. 
right? We did a session together here uh, in Boston at the at the uh, New England Secondary Schools Consortium, and we talked about how uh, Big Picture Network is in the middle of on the range of school networks from really loose affiliations to really tight managed affiliations. You're, uh, um, you try to be just right in the middle in terms of offering um, a set of design principles and a set of services and a set of learning experiences. Um, but it, 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 is that how you think about it as a, a set of just right services that give people room to innovate but support sort of when and how they need it? I think I think that's right. I, I'm uh, for some reason stuck on a Goldilocks kind of image here, but I, the reason that I that I go with that is that um, th- there's a combination, and and here's why I think you wind up in the middle uh, is that on the one hand, the folks who need to do the work and need to be able to do the work sustainably are the folks there on the ground, and that means they need to own it, and that means they need to develop their own muscles to do that. So. In a weightlifting analogy, you know, we can help spot them and we can help coach them and help them come up with the training regimen. But if they haven't developed their own muscles to keep lifting that bar, then we have not, you know, we're, we're not doing our job of bringing that value proposition. Um, on the flip side, what I would say is that, um, you know, launching and supporting and growing and developing a school, there are a certain number of predictable things that come up. You know, it's a little bit like, it's still whitewater kayaking, but maybe it's going down a river that you've gone down before. And having a guide who can help point out where some of the whirlpools are or some of the gnarly rocks or some of the overhangs you could get tangled in, I think can be very helpful. So we we try to, on the one hand, um, give folks enough opportunity to develop their own schools and flex their own muscles and work out their own uh, exact approaches to fit their local context. Um, but on the other hand, we can provide sort of some, some bumpers on the bowling lane to make sure that it doesn't, doesn't fall into the gutter. I know I just put four different uh, metaphors. Maybe that's part of what we do. We help people have lots of metaphors <laughs> to think about their work. So there's about 65 schools um, in this country. You seem to be yep. growing in, at least as rapidly internationally. Um, but you're not really looking for hyper growth. How, how do you think about it? Yep your aspirations for the network? So, well, so I think, um, first, I, I do feel a tremendous sense of urgency related to our work. You know, every time I look at, quite frankly, everything from current events to the macro global issues and challenges that face our planet, I think about who are the leaders that we need for tomorrow? Who are the citizens that we need for tomorrow? How do we help young people grow into the kinds of adults that will lead and follow and support and create the kinds of societies that will make our future and our democracy sustainable. So I I think about that all the time. And I I, um, know that we need to fundamentally shift and change our education system in order to make that possible. So there is a real sense of urgency. But what I also recognize is that, you know, this work, we've got to be in it for the long haul. It's not about a sprint. And it's, um, it, 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 we have to be, it's more important to do this work right than it is to do it fast. And so that means making sure that we have the right set of partners and sort of vetting each other in both directions to make sure the collaborations will be effective. Um, and so in the United States, that means that, you know, we're never the kind of folks who are going to put down a, 
you know, a, a marker in the sand and say, we'll have, you know, 100 schools by the end of the decade. Like, that's never been the way we've approached our work. Um, and similarly, internationally, um, you know, maybe this is a, an example of the way in which we, we think about our work. But, you know, the way in which our international networks got started is that folks came over from Australia. They came over from the Netherlands. They came over from India. They said, we've heard about your schools. We want to see them. And then after they saw them for a while, they said, okay, we want to go make this happen in our countries. How do we do that? And we said, let's figure out how we do that together. We'll work with you. We don't, we don't know exactly how to do it because your context is unique and different, but we have learned some stuff along the way. And so, you know, that's why there are now a whole bunch of rapidly growing and really lauded awarded schools in Australia, in New Zealand, in Tasmania, uh, in the Netherlands, um, schools in Canada, Belize, uh, so my colleagues just got back from China. We're having some really exciting conversations there. The next school in India um, has really been getting tremendous attention there. Um, so it's really, it, it's something that simultaneously has been organic and opportunistic. Uh, you know, we do, you know, deliberately spread the word about the work that we're doing, um, but we only come by invitation. You know, we are not a colonial, evangelical, imperial organization uh, in our work. A couple of months ago, I visited uh, Vox Big Picture in Philadelphia. Um, it's it's a really tough circumstances, tough neighborhood that uh, has been through a lot. Uh, and and Vox is a interesting partnership with the city, the housing authority, the teachers association. Um, really trying to do a full wraparound. Um, set of youth and family supports in addition to a, a highly engaging academic program. Um, it sounds like a, a fairly high percentage of your schools are really high challenge. Uh, alternative schools or what some people would call continuation schools, but schools for young people that haven't been successful in, in other settings. Um, are you, you actively looking for those kind of situations or are they are they finding you? Why are why are so many people in the alt ed space turning to big picture? That that's a fascinating and fantastic question, and I think we we don't have an exact idea of how and why they're finding us. I think in part because they're not they're not finding a lot of other folks who are really excited to do that work, and I think we are thrilled. That feels like exactly in the wheelhouse of where we think the greatest need um, is. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned, we think a lot about how do you prepare young people to be the adults and leaders we need for the future, and particularly young people who are coming from communities that have been historically oppressed, have been historically uh, not seen as having assets, have been historically uh, systematically disadvantaged, um, those are the young people who I think have some of the greatest potential. You know, we, sometimes we talk about like post-traumatic stress disorder. I think there's also a post-traumatic resilience. Um, a lot of, or many of the most talented folks come out of situations um, that are fraught with challenge and difficulty. And um, so the, the, I want to celebrate, you know, the, the, the work of Big Picture Philadelphia. David Bromley and his team down there have just been really amazing. Uh, they've worked for many years uh, with El Centro de Estudiantes, uh, which is an alternative school sort of across town um, in uh, North, North Philly. Um, and they 
uh, are the ones who have helped to relaunch and really revitalize Vox, which has a long and vaunted history in the city, um, but then went through a period of, of sort of decay and real abandonment. Um, and so to see this kind of reinvestment in the entire neighborhood aligns with our with our priorities. And as you mentioned, it is indicative of the you know, the work that we are, some of the work we're most excited to do is with schools, with districts who are trying to figure out how to connect the most disengaged youth. Um, because I think that, um, you know, uh, youth disengage from high school for a whole lot of reasons. And I think there's been this, like in the U.S., we frame them as dropouts. In the U.K., they call them non-completers. I think in some places you've been called pushouts, right? It's like, is the education system providing what those young people need? If, if this was a medical system, right, every time a patient didn't do well in the medical system, we do some kind of intensive study of an, an investigation of like, well, what was wrong with the medical system that this person didn't get treated well? And yet in education, we don't do that. So I think we, we really look to focus on which are the schools that are quote unquote alternative or continuation or have some kind of designation for young people who have not experienced success in the rest of the system. We're doing that work not only with Big Picture Philadelphia in Philadelphia, with places like J.J. Cairns and Lindsay in California, uh, who are just um, uh, acknowledged as a model continuation school in the state of California. Also with folks like uh, Gibson Eck up in Issaquah, Washington, um, with support from the Stewart Foundation, where uh, our regional director, Javier Guzman, is leading a whole network of these alternative schools in California and Washington called the Upstream Collaborative, with the idea that if we can jump into the stream a little further up, uh, we may be able to help young people find their flow. For the last 20 years, our public policy, uh, I'm thinking federal, state, and even district, um, has really focused on accountability. And it's done a lousy job of recognizing the value add of alternative schools. Do you have a sense of how public policy could better recognize the value add of, in, of alternative schools, how it could create incentives that would make more people excited about working with the least well-served uh, young people in America? Yeah, that's the, that's the million-dollar question, maybe the billion-dollar question. Um, so I think that... Um, I was, I was in a conversation just recently around the question of accountability um, and uh, someone sort of surfaced an assumption that I think far too often is not raised up, which is they said, oh, you know, things like standardized tests and objective accountability measures. I said, hold on, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. When you say objective accountability measures, right, who's who gets to object to those accounting measures? And and why do we say they're objective, right? Who, I think they're relatively subjective and who is subjected to them? So I'm all in favor of accountability provided that it actually does provide a holistic set of information around some way we want to evaluate student performance, right? And students' ability to learn and, and take and, and um, engage in, uh, you know, and, and demonstrate their learning. Uh, but I think that that is clearly not the case. We've used sort of the equivalent of a quick and dirty accountability system that is an inadequate proxy. Um, so I think we do need public policy that supports some kinds of new measures. 
um, that looks beyond just what have been called outcomes. And here I'll take further umbrage. I think you know, anyone who wants to say that a 10th grade English or math score is an outcome, like we're gonna have some words, like that's not an outcome. I don't think a high school graduation is an outcome. Uh, I don't think that a college acceptance or a college graduation is an outcome. I think an outcome is where are you five to 10 years after you finish your K-12 experience? And in what ways did the learning experiences you have during K-12 open up a variety of options and improve your general trajectory? And like that, those are the kinds of things we need to be looking at. Um, now, you know, education is fraught with uh, issues around not tracking those kinds of long-term outcomes. But that's really what we need to look at. And I think finding some shorter-term measures, you know, I was, I was really optimistic, cautiously optimistic around some of these ideas around social impact bonds and ways to look at pay for performance. Or I, The challenge with some of those is that most of those as actual investment vehicles have much too short a time horizon um, to, to invest in a K-12 system. But I think there might be ideas we could draw from that, you know, that are really actually looking at outcome measures as opposed to a sort of brief snapshot dipstick moment in time um, a, a snapshot. What is Emblaze? Well, Emblaze. Uh, so Emblaze is, is an attempt to provide young people those sets of opportunities down the road. So one of the things that Big Picture has, has long worked on is a, and, and focused on is the idea that if you support young people in pursuing their interests beyond the classroom, getting out into learning experiences with adult experts. So that could be you know, as I mentioned from that, that first young man who I met, that could be going out and, you know, working in a science laboratory, right? Um, one of our young folks who I was just visiting with in Lemonster, uh, her name's Isabel, and she came in and said, you know, I like doing a lot of things. I like playing music. I like writing. Um, but one of the things I really like doing is science. I'm going to just Google what science laboratories there are here in Lemonster. And she found out that uh, ETR, this incredible um, uh, water testing laboratory, is there in Lemonster. And she went down and spent a little time visiting and checking it out. And a few months later, she was running gas chromatography and NMR, uh, nucleomagnetic, nucleomagnetic resonance image spectroscopy. Um, and then got hired over the summer training college students in how to use those equipment. So she got to go out, meet with professionals who work in that field, um, and begin uh, working there um, and, and having an internship. And so the question is, that's fine and it's nice one individual story, but what if you want to get 10 or 100 or 1,000 young people out having those kinds of experiences? Well, schools haven't been set up to do that. How do you create an opportunity so that schools can do that easily, efficiently, effectively, and consistently? Um, and that's really what Emblaze is. It's a way for schools or outside of school providers to coordinate large numbers of young people having interest-based internship experiences. It's a software application and a way for those organizations to curate a large number of internship opportunities. I love the check-in feature that allows an advisor to know that their students have shown up and are on site. Right? <laughs> That's that, right. That is not a trivial oh, yeah. matter that, um, you know, to date, we haven't had a good way just to even know how, where young people are and how they're doing. And you get a little bit of both on Emblaze, a, a check-in and some feedback. Yeah. That, I mean, that came out of a very real need, which is if you are a high school principal 
and your educators come to you and say, we're going to start having all the 11th grade go out and intern at different community businesses and organizations. The first shot of fear that goes through a school leader's mind is, where are the kids going to be and how are we going to know if we're there, if they're there? And if there's, you know, have we done the right kinds of, you know, checks and support to, to make sure that they're going on? So, yeah, and Blaze works with any um, smartphone or laptop or Chromebook, any kind of Internet-enabled device. Uh, a young person can, when they arrive, they just check in and they say, I'm here. And it asks whether their mentor is there. They can go, you know, uh, right onto those devices and it, it date and timestamps it as well as GPS captures a little bit of information. So now if you're an educator back at the school, in live real time, you just see all of your students popping up. It's a way to, to track that kind of attendance and also document the total number of hours that young people spend there. So at the end of the day, they check out, it automatically sends a confirmation to their mentor at the internship site who can offer a little bit of feedback. Um, and this also enables then the, the educator, when they walk into school the next day, uh, they can look over and have read up on what all these students did. And so they can triage a bit and say, hey, I need to talk to these three students um, because of something that came up, of, you know, an opportunity or a concern that they might have. Where can people learn more online? Sure. So uh, if uh, Imblaze, that's I-M-B-L-A-Z-E, Imblaze.org, as in I am blazing a trail out there, uh, cutting your own way through the, the wilderness and the forest. Right. And they um, can find Big Picture at? Uh, bigpicturelearning.org. They can find you at, uh, at Andrew Frischman. On Twitter, that's on Twitter. correct. I'm glad to, glad to connect with folks in my travels. I'm based out here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but do get to travel a bit and would be glad to put you in touch with one of my stellar colleagues or regional directors. Andrew, we appreciate the work you're doing and all the impact that Big Pictures had. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to connect with you and the feelings mutual. Appreciate the things that you're highlighting out there. We learn a ton from getting smart. We got to be careful not to get too smart. So thank you. <laughs> thanks, Andrew. A big thanks to Andrew for joining us on the podcast. It's so cool that Andrew and Carlos Marino were advisors together at the Met and now lead Big Picture Learning. We appreciate how Big Picture is helping people around the world rethink secondary education with students at the center. For more, check out a half a dozen posts about Big Picture and their work on gettingsmart.com, including a 2016 podcast with Andrew. And for all things innovations and learning, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes. That's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.